Hey guys, we're going to get started uh, because we might as well. I have a lot of information and uh, we, have, we have about an hour. I think we have an hour to, to go and then you could maybe stay a little longer until the next session at 3.30, but I, I have a lot. <clears throat> First of all, just to make sure you're in the right room, uh, this is Digital Dangers, Avoiding the Pitfalls of Social Media. I'm Tom Patton. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. I'm also um, pastor of pastoral care. This is the room we meet in, the fellowship group that I, I'm pastor with, also with John Street, who's around the co- corner in the hall. And um, this is a really important subject. I, again, just to introduce this, <clears throat> I was um, asked to contribute a chapter to a book that it just came out. I talked about it just a few minutes ago uh, about uh, right thinking in a culture in chaos. And that's kind of the third book of, of uh, a whole thing that we did with Harvest House, where it was about um, uh, right thinking and world gone wrong, right thinking, I can't even remember the next two, it was always right thinking, right thinking, and so we've been asked to contribute different chapters, and mine has always had a little bit of an emphasis on media or in some way entertainment, because whether you know it or not, I've taught acting uh, in my nights for 33 years, I was an act. I actually got saved out of the acting world, became a Christian, uh, went to seminary, uh, being able to fund seminary through teaching, acting at night, and then I still do it one night a week or two nights a week. I do that, and so I'm kind of seen as that guy that knows about entertainment. Do I? I don't know. I know acting. You know, uh, you know, they, 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 people think I do because nobody else watches television. So, <laughs> you know, before I was saved, I tell people this all the time. I was a bartender for like nine years, and so when I got saved, and I'm the only pastor on staff that knows how to read a wine list, you know. I mean, everybody else is oblivious. And so, so I got that going for me. Um, but it is something that's very compelling to me because I have children. I have three adult children now. But during the time that I was in seminary, so much of this was having to be challenged uh, in my own mind because, again, when you're raising kids, when you have accessibility to the Internet, it's, it's really... Um, can be a really horrific, horrific thing. When I first got saved, I don't even think the internet was popular. I don't even think it was out there that much. And once it started to be discovered bit by bit, I remember I had Juno for email. If you guys remember Juno, you don't, yeah. Oh, praise God. Uh, so, so uh, you know, the dial-up and the whole thing. And even then, just slight accessibility to the internet caused a lot of caution. So we're going to start with that. Let me open in a word of prayer first, and then we'll go through our material. Father, thank you for this conference. Thank you for this individual and corporate focus on uh, your body and your leaders and the pastors and and elders and deacons who are here that are so focused on shepherding the remnant, the, the folks that you have saved out of the darkness of their sin into the light of Christ. And so we come here with the intention of being better stewards of that commission. And we ask that even in this particular area of digital dangers that we would be awakened, that we would be reminded of things that we already know, that we would be cautioned, and that we would be encouraged. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to say a lot of things that you know. I'm going to be very, very obvious to you because, again, like Peter says in 2 Peter 2, sometimes we need to be stirred up by way of reminder of things that we already know. So you know that media is everywhere. Uh, You cannot escape from it. 
It is from the home to the car. If you have buds, from the workplace to the marketplace. From the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you go to bed, we have this unending stream of just information overload for every level. And it's, it's with the intention of trying to kind of contour and, and provoke our minds to think a certain way. We have such an unprecedented amount of accessibility to information on everything. I mean, topics and people and weather and trends and gossip. So much so that you kind of feel like you're in this giant stream of, of data, like you're swimming in it. Social media is like a hidden underground river running through every aspect of our lives. Yet, ironically, though that is true, people don't really understand, I believe, the rage and the current and the velocity of what is social media and the influence of social media and the, 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 to extend the metaphor that the creatures that lie at the bottom of all of that that are just waiting to be um, used to hook into our lives through internet and radio and television and smartphones. And it's almost as if this stream of internet and, and of media influence, it's like uh, something that you would put a fishing pole into. And when you do that, you have these leviathans that come out, these cyber-sized monsters that can really engulf your entire world. Even though people now see this kind of ubiquitous nature of social media more than ever, still we walk headlong into it. It's almost like the more that we are aware of it, the more we become unaware of it. It has this influence of familiarity. Many fail to realize that the latest and greatest electronic kind of gizmos that connects you to the cyber world has the power to create a completely different social order. And if you have any doubt of that, there are so many different books you can uh, focus on so many different uh, podcasts that you could listen to to just reinforce that. Everything, Facebook, Google, YouTube, texting, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, all of that, which is, again, some of the surface, try to label themselves as not being dangerous but are really needing to be labeled as poison for what they really are. And so I want to rethink this. I want to look at some of the fine print of this. It's essential, especially as leaders in the church, that we just don't um, know that our folks sit on their couches every single day and watch television and watch the internet. and that, that doesn't in some way infect or affect the way they are in the pew in the church. It does affect the way they are. And it affects the way they view not only everything from your preaching and the choir and, and the way that you present worship, but also their own lives. So if you own a radio, television, computer, iPad, iPhone, iPad, Android, whatever else is out there, watch. You have accessibility to the social stream that is dangerous, and you need to be aware of those dangers. And that's what we're going to unpack today, some of that. Even though it's important to state that the mediums are definitely being used for good, God is definitely using them in ways that are countless. For the most part, it is being used by Satan uh, for evil purposes. And I think that's why we're here. Case in point, Grace Missions International, which is our sending agency here for our missionaries, has this in the program that they have printed out. It says, social media can be a helpful way to communicate with your support team and keep people informed as to your prayer requests, praise reports, news, and needs. Again, talking to our missionaries. Used in the right way, social media can be a useful tool for missionaries. At the same time, improper or unwise use of social media can cause significant damage. 
There can be damage to your ministry, the ministry of another missionary, the ministry of Grace Community Church, or most significantly, it can bring dispute on the name of Christ. And then the manual goes on, just articulates all these different areas of danger that missionaries need to consider while they're abroad. And think about that. To tell that to men who are in ministry, to tell that to men who have been you know, vetted by our church and looked uh, deeply into their lives and are skilled and excellent and are family men, to tell them that they're susceptible to social media, that's a pretty major, I think, uh, kind of uh, sign on the wall that tells us that these things need to be thought through. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at some imperative aspects of this because social media is like, I believe, a lion waiting to devour our most personal relationships, uh, our, our ability to even reason and think, our ability to uh, not deteriorate our families and our churches. It's like Genesis 7, God describes sin as being like an animal lying in wait for Cain, and he's waiting to spring upon them, all who enter into it, and he's not able to be seen, and the person who enters into scene is not obvious of the sin that they're about to enter into, and we can't be ignorant of it. Again, I'm going to set this up for a little while, but unbeknownst to us, the allurement and influence of social media secretly enters our home first, not because we know it's dangerous, because it's exciting. It enters into our home first and foremost because it's the latest electronic toy, It's the uh, most impressive gadget, technology. And it's so interesting that we say, yeah, you can come in and live and dine with us because why wouldn't you be a part of our table? Never knowing that slowly but surely it draws you into a pattern of living. So we are suddenly drawn away from meaningful conversation. Remember what that was? Conversations when two people talk to each other. Conversation, uh, meaningful thinking, meaningful planning and dreaming and praying and Playing together instead of just swaying your life away into meaningless texting for hours and scrolling down the page. So we have been transformed into a 24-hour amusement park without irritation or interruption. We, we ask ourselves and find ourselves trying to set aside time at home just to engage in the latest form of cyber escapism so that our children or wives never have to talk to us. So no longer does the husband come home to serve, he comes home to surf. No longer does the wife stay at home to read her Bible, she stays at home to read her blog. No longer does the church come together in fellowship, they stay in their bedroom to Facebook. And the, and the contention of this seminar is these things ought not to be. So this seminar is like an unashamed clarion call for everyone to stand up, take note of the fact that the world that we live in And you guys are, again, you're not the youngest in this whole conference, but you're definitely not the oldest. I mean, our world has changed since you've been around. The seminar is designed to help you think through some of the most common temptations and issues concerning the cyber world either your family or you have failed to or don't want to recognize. And this seminar is about making sure that you are aware of the massive danger that's right before you because as a single man or as a married man or a husband or a wife, father, mother, you have a responsibility to your family and to your own soul to communicate this danger to yourself so that you can glorify God and want his highest good. So I want to set this up first theologically, and then I'm going to set it up with application, okay? First theologically and then practically. 
And we're going to do this first by just kind of giving you some thoughts to think about. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 10 first. 2 Corinthians 10. So I've got to set this up for you so you know how to think about this, again, from this, biblically from the pages of Scripture. And then I'm going to make some application that I think will be helpful, maybe things you've thought about before, maybe you just need to hear it out loud, and maybe something you've never thought of before. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5, says this. This is Paul writing, saying, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now look back at verse 4 here for just for a second because I want you to put your eyes on that word stronghold. That's, I have the uh, Legacy Standard Bible. Most of your translations will say that. New American Standard says fortresses. What is a stronghold? What is a fortress? Well, On one side of the coin, a stronghold is a massive place of fortification where those on the inside are protected from those things on the outside, okay? On one side, you can sit there of a stronghold and think of it as that you're defending yourself. Uh, The New Oxford English Dictionary says, it's a place that's been fortified so as to protect it from attack. It also says it's a place where a particular cause or belief is strongly defended or upheld. And then it says, a Republican stronghold. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) New Oxford Dictionary. Know where you're coming from. So Paul says Christians are to destroy these strongholds. We're to destroy these strongholds. What does he mean? Well, first you have to ask yourself what the stronghold in this context means. It means that we have divinely, verse 4, powerful weapons, stronghold, fortresses, and that to destroy every speculation, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of Christ. To put it another way, we are to be destroying, take that word first, speculations. It means thoughts and ideas and opinions and reasonings and philosophies and theories and, and religions. That's what it means. It has to do with thoughts. You want to destroy those thoughts and opinions, and these are the forts in which men hide. Uh, We hide in what are these forts? Hide from accountability. Hide from recognition that there is a God, that He is a God who judges. These can be ideological fortresses. These can be philosophical fortresses, religious strongholds, and they try to hide and fortify themselves against God and against the gospel. Now, these fortresses, notice, are not demons. The way he speaks of this is not in terms of individuals. They are not devils. We have a lot of people who define spiritual warfare as chasing demons around. But the Bible doesn't define it that way. Our enemy has formed from demonic forces, uh, sources, ideologies. So ultimately, what we're fighting is doctrines of demons, doctrines They come from seducing spirits, hypocritical liars who build these great edifices to human wisdom and to demonic doctrine. But we assault the system. We don't assault the person necessarily. We assault the system. We don't chase spirits. Spirit indicates right here that our war is for the destruction of these strongholds. They're not demons. They're humanly demonic inspired ideologies. That's important to take into your home. 
Further in verse 5, they're defined in this way. Take the word chi in the Greek, translated and. It can also mean even, for those of you that, that study Greek. Even, which means to further explain a thing, maybe a better way to translate it. We are destroying speculations, even every lofty thing taken up against the knowledge of God. So that's what a speculation is. He kind of defines it right here. It's every concept, every opinion, every reason or philosophy, every theory, ideology, again, every story that's against God is a stronghold. And they get very strong, very powerful, each one of these strongholds, every lofty thing. So think about it. Every ideology, any speculation, any theory. You, I know you're going through your mind even right now, just all the things that you see in the in the uh, blogs, anything you see on the internet, anything that you see in a newspaper or on, on television. It's like these are, these are edifices. These are fortresses being built up by man that man entrenches himself into so that he can hide in this kind of pseudo-scientific, pseudo-philosophical, pseudo-intellectual opinion against God. 1 Corinthians 3.20 says that they are the reasonings of the wise, worldly wise, not the things of God. They're raised up against him. You, you know Romans 1, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans 1 we have the idea that everybody comes into the world knowing there's a God, knowing through creation that God exists, knowing about his eternal power, the fact that they are without excuse because they know of through creation. And God, of course, you know the story of Romans 1, says they turn against God, right? They, they turn against God. They know there's a God, but they don't want God. They turn their back on God. It says they repress the truth and unrighteousness. They create gods of their own, and they turn the true God into nothing except a creature, and they fortify themselves in this false system. So I just want you to know that, because Paul knew that. Paul understood these fortresses. He was born in one of these fortresses, not, a, not with brick and mortar, but an anti-God system. You might have thought of that before, but apostate Judaism is a fortress. Apostate Judaism it was a false form of Judaism where you could convince a man that your salvation is through your own self-righteousness. And by thinking that, that's a fortification of a false system. He set himself, because of that, against Christ, because of the way he's thought, against that superpower of a fortress against everything that was godly and lived for apostate Judaism. So I put this out there because this is the war. This is the war. It's not just social media. Social media is a tool. It's a mechanism. It's, it's the medium through which the war is waged. Philip Johnson in his book, Reason in the Balance, not Phil Johnson, but Philip Johnson, uh, <laughs> the, you're, you're Googling it right now. He had a book, Reason in the Balance. The most, I- most influential intellectuals, philosophers, scientists, educators, and politicians and judges in America and the world are naturalists, end quote. Naturalist. What does that mean? You know what a naturalist is? An atheist. A naturalist is someone that believes only God only exists in your mind, that, that he believes that the fantasy of, of religion is, is part of the non-religious man or woman. Atheists control our courts. Atheists control our government. They control our universities. They control our media. They control the way our phones go off in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> Judges who make legal decisions, journalists who report the news. If you just knew every movie that you ever watched, 
has an agenda, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. Don't think for one moment that this is just pristinely some kind of uh, thing that doesn't exist. Don't be naive. Uh, even the entertainment business, uh, just to give you a little highlight, probably bring you down a little bit. I know nobody in here watches television, but still, just in case you do, uh, Morgan Freeman is an atheist. George Clooney, Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, uh, Woody Allen, Frank Sinatra. He's not one anymore because he now knows the truth. He has died and is reaping the whirlwind. Billy Joel, Jodie Foster, Natalie Portman, Bill Murray, John Malkovich, Keanu Reeves, uh, William Shatner, Kevin Bacon. It just goes on and on. If you do a search on who does not claim to be a believer, not just in Jesus Christ, but in God. One time I was at a question and answer seminar that I had to do part of my teaching responsibilities as a, as a coach. And Susan Sarandon, you may or may not know who she was, she was there doing a Q&A. And she said in this Q&A that all films are political. All films are political. And I remember at the time, this was probably 20 years ago, I remember thinking like, that's not true. That's not true. And then I started to think about it. Wait a second, wait a second. Every single film, every single script, everything has an agenda to it. And the agenda is not pro-Jesus. And then she added, check this out, that she named her daughter Eve because, quote, Eve was the first feminist, end quote. Yeah, yeah. And everybody, of course, in the audience who were unbelieving actors are just going, that's wild, that's great. And I'm like, you know, (laughs) not being able to speak and wanting to say something, what am I going to say? Of course, she's just telling the truth. That's how she believes. That's That's her truth. And others like her believe that those who believe the gospel, us, believe in the Bible, us, are irrational, we're dangerous, and we must be allowed to have very limited influence in the public discourse and very limited influence in pop culture. So God has no place in public life. He has no place on the internet. He has no place in education. God has no place in government, social policy. Yes, sir, we are the remnant. Thank you. Uh, We can pray now. We can end this time. That was my point. That was where I was going. So, you're so smart. Everybody's so smart. Uh, I'll just send this to you in the email. No, so uh, the atheism of our time, the evolutionary atheists of our time are nothing more than just these ideological fortresses. So, these are the fortresses that we are up against. And just real quick, let me go back. Even verse 5, he says that how formidable these fortresses are, these strongholds. He says, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a statement. That's quite a statement. We're competent. We're able to, as believers, to destroy these fortresses and to take them captive. We're going to take the people in them captive. That's the idea. So what we watch, and again... What we hear, what we evaluate, what's presented to us through the prism of taking those ideologies through the capture of Christ is what our job is, even in social media. So I don't know if you thought of it as such a lofty thing, but it is. And we have to learn how to do that because entertainment as a concept to most widespread platform is a platform for these ideologies. You know Neil Postman. You've probably heard of him. He wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, classic book from the 80s. He said this, Our politics, religion, news, athletics, education, and commerce have been transformed into adjuncts of show business, largely without protest or even much popular notice. The result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. 
I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is demanding and serious religion when it's delivered as easy and amusing. It is another kind of religion altogether. This is a Jewish man talking, just observing what's going on in tele-evangelism. You've, you guys have heard of the Trojan horse, right? You, that's, uh, it's a huge hollow wooden horse the Greeks used to gain entrance into Troy. The way they call it the Trojan horse. And the Greeks tried to pretend that they were in the desert to, to desert the war. They were pretending to desert the war and, and sailed to a nearby island, leaving just one of their own kind of relics there and persuaded the Trojans that the horse was an offering to Athena, the goddess of war, that would make Troy invincible. And so despite all of the warnings of some within the community, the horse was taken inside the gate. And of course, the night the Greek warriors emerged from it and opened the gates to let the returning Greek army to come back in. So this idea of Trojan horse has been used for many years to refer to the subversive introduced from the outside. From, from those things, those ideologies, the strongholds introduced to get inside. So entertainment, if I could say it this way, is the Trojan horse. Entertainment is the Trojan horse of America. So all that to say, we'd have to be aware that these fortresses are aiming to destroy our biblically informed minds, that they are both to fortify, we are to fortify ourselves into, instead of being seduced by their lure, and we have to come to these Trojan horses not naively. We have to know what we're up against. So that's what this seminar is going to be about, just a little biblical kind of introduction. I want to look at five areas with that in mind of social media's influence on the life of a believer that can distract us away from and our families away from having healthy fellowship with one another because this is all based on this false view of life and the false view of life that social media encourages. So the first area of influence that media promotes that's false, or you could say the first enemy that's held in the Trojan horse that's waiting to get into your living room, number one is a false view of intimacy. So just follow me with some of these dangers. Uh, the first influence of media it promotes is a false view of intimacy. What do I mean by that? Easy access to social media can create in some people the sense of false intimacy with those they want to interact with. Because people have been created by God to desire closeness and relationships, intimacy is a natural byproduct of what it is to be human. And because of that, when you have the desire for intimacy and it's challenging to gain that intimacy through God-ordained means, through dating and marriage and relationships and, and conversations, sometimes, almost inadvertently, people start to seek intimacy through other means. At first, this desire for intimacy is not always conscious. People don't realize, I think, the power of wanting closeness and attention. But once the convenience of like texting and social media, browsing and interaction is introduced, the unsuspecting one can enter through the door of self-deception and can find themselves immediately uh, brought in closely to this desire for immediate imp intimacy. Now, you probably know this. If, you, if any of you are married in this room or if you're wanting to be married, uh, intimacy is very, very time-consuming. You know, to really be close to someone in a relationship is very difficult work. It's, it's messy work. Um, real intimacy is tacky and sometimes very painful. And so real, honest-to-goodness intimacy between human beings requires like a give and take in something that we call reality. 
And reality is the opposite of imaginary. And so reality, as we find out, is not always what we want it to be. And so we find that real intimacy happens when two people who are open and honest and patient and forgiving and accepting and committed to each other no matter what happens. False intimacy happens when someone is lying and anxious and hiding, partially open, partially selective, and uncommitted. So false intimacy obviously is much easier to gain. False intimacy happens with people who don't live with you. False intimacy, you can be a rock star outside your house. It doesn't matter. As soon as you get home, it's like, where's the trash? False intimacy happens with people who want the rush of excitement that's associated with intimacy without the pain of loyalty. For example, according to the latest research, and this is tough stuff to swallow, I understand, we all now text one another more often than we speak to one another, either by phone or face-to-face. Texting is, of course, the king and queen. And to make matters worse, considerable proportion of the remaining conversations that do happen between people take place as if people were texting and not talking. So it's abbreviated. One survey found that young women in particular, this is not going to shock you, now use text speak as their main conversational slang, as if those of us who live with teenagers haven't noticed that. Uh, So the vocabulary can be reduced to just, you know, LOL, uh, FYI, BFF, uh, blasphemous uh, OMG, which according to the Oxford English Dictionary now is uh, a part of their definition. Um, it's actually a definition because it's been used so much. In fact, according to some studies, people are led into adultery three times faster through social media means like texting than normal adulterous patterns. One study asserts this. When you don't have, when you don't have nonverbal communication, which, by the way, is 80% of all communication is nonverbal. The way you communicate is not just with your words, it's with your behavior. When you don't have nonverbal communication, the likelihood of being able to disclose to a deeper level is greater because it's less uh, inhibiting. Meaning, if you don't have, (laughs) let me say that again. I just saw my wife go. He's stuttering again. Thank you, dear. I love you. Um, I love you. Uh, So it's going to seem like a more intimate, I really do. It's going to seem like a more intimate relationship because you don't have to deal with them. Social media has enabled relationships to begin, you know, at first innocently, and then you come through the back door of texting, and you do what seems like to be the work of true intimacy, but it's not. And I say this. I once counseled a couple. Very, very sad. Wife was convinced her husband was leaving for a weekend trip um, to get closer to the Lord, but then found that somehow um, he was involved I'm going to try to cloak this. Let's say he or she was involved in uh, a relationship with a man that they met at work whom they were caught kissing. Um, So what started, and it was all started with texting. It was all started, uh, did you receive the order? Uh, Evolved into have a great weekend. Evolved into you're too funny. Evolved into where are you now? Just through texting because it creates a false sense of intimacy. Now, it's important to note that texting, Facebook, tweeting, Instagram, all that, of course, are not the reason for infidelity. Of course not. It's always the heart. It's always the heart being hungry for something other than God. James says, we lust and do not have, so we sin. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So the human heart is always the issue. 
But there's a wide difference between the heart that's hungry for intimacy and leans to prayer and thoughtfulness and striving through conversation and, and trying to strategize how can I do this and, and gain you know, a platform with this person so that I can speak to them to gain intimacy with them. Real intimacy is earned Real intimacy is waiting for their love to be expressed. Real intimacy has to do with writing notes with ink and then and taking out the garbage, like I just said, and all of which express your desire to be closer. And none of those actions can be done online. I've tried it. Yeah. Can I, say, can I add something on to that? Too? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. Good point. <laughs> wow, you know what? I, thought, I hadn't thought of that. I, 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 wow. Man, you guys, <laughs> you're so sharp. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we'll get to that. We're kind of backing our way into the back door to get into that. Social media affects our intentions by robbing us of being in a room with a person so yeah, before you, get, before you get into pornography, you got to get to the point where you're not talking to someone, where your heart is hard. You're not listening to them anymore. Um, you accidentally, you, you don't have conversation. Conversation is when you're listening to somebody, then you interrupt them, and they interrupt you, and then you go, wait a second, let's, can we start this again? And you get frustrated, and you have to apologize, and then you restart the conversation. That's like life. That happens. You don't have to do that online. You, you, that happens when you talk. It's old-fashioned, but it works. And, and deep hunger in the human heart wants that intimacy, real lasting closeness and beauty and joy. Unfortunately, gentlemen, it's not created in such a way where there's a shortcut. There are no, short, no shortcuts for that. So if you go online, back to my brother's point, to get a quick fix of intimacy, either through chatting with someone of the opposite sex who isn't your spouse or through pornography or any other sin, you're not only losing your objective of intimacy in life, but you are really damaging your ability to have it. You're damaging your ability to actually even be intimate. You're destroying your own house. Let's transition to a second falsehood. And I'm going to really go over a lot of this. And if there's anything that I've left out, please, guys, we'll have a Q&A at the end. And just write down all the things that you think of as I'm uh, addressing. And if I don't address them by the end, then we'll do a Q&A with that, okay? Second danger, second false um, awareness of social media falseness is and i just gave it away it's a false awareness of isolation the second enemy inside this trojan horse is a false awareness of isolation so think about that we talked about a false uh, sense of intimacy now we're going to talk about a false awareness of isolation so this is a, a side point but social media has a strange way of luring people into the mindset of isolation without them noticing it, it's happening all the time Many times we have a false um, awareness of the fact that we're being more and more isolated from one another, and that inhibits us from being engaged in good old-fashioned conversation. Pastor John MacArthur once said this, privacy is the number one threat to your Christian faith. Privacy is the number one threat to your Christian faith. Very, very subtle. Author Ivan Meisner explains in his article, it was a Business Week article, you go to LinkedIn or Facebook and you read a comment, it takes you to another link, and now you're on YouTube watching someone's video, and pretty soon something weird happens in the space-time continuum, and you look, and you lost two hours. That's happened. 
So from the very outset, this kind of online browsing comes to this surreal reality. You begin to isolate yourself from the world. It's not like a book. It's not people say, well, people have been reading books for hundreds of years. No, no, no. It's very, very different. It opens one door, then another, then another. In a book, you might have to take a moment and write it down and get back to that thought sometime else. But this is a trap door versus a trap door to another trap door. And then comes the stage when this unnoticed passing of time, when your you're together becomes normal, becomes the norm to be with your cyber people or cyber space. And in fact, more than the norm, being isolated becomes, get this, your heart's desire. You can't get home from work fast enough because as soon as you get home, you get to have that, that time with precious, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I only read books. Uh, so <laughs> I've heard about this. There's a secular book out there that came across, and it was, it's a secular book, but it had a title that I thought was just great. and was addressing this phenomenon, and it's called Alone Together. Isn't that just it? Alone together. We are alone together. More and more married couples, more and more families, whole families are alone together. There's a commercial, maybe you've seen it, it's had different forms all throughout the years. It portrays a family at dinner, and they're all on their own texting device or electronic device, and they're not talking to one another. They're texting each other. Would you pass the salad, <laughs> you know, or something like that, and you're right there. You think that's funny, but I'm sure in your own home... You've texted someone upstairs to come downstairs. Why get up and say, hey, I just text you. And it's more effective because you know they're on their phone. (laughs) Now, some people could argue, but people do that with a newspaper, don't they? Well, again, that's not what I'm saying because the only difference with a newspaper is once you've read it, you've read it. Mm. (laughs) Where on the Internet, the web is endless, which means it's an endless distraction. Endless Now, here's the point. We're living in a culture that's isolating us away from each other at the speed of light. And we stare into screens and not faces. We gaze into pixels, not people. We are becoming lonelier than ever before. And studies confirm that. John MacArthur writes again, social media often distracts people from existing relationships. Instead of pouring themselves into real-life friendships they currently have, people now spend hours with pseudo-friends online. This is especially seen within the family where social networking constantly threatens to invade, bringing a barrage of cultural influence into the private world of family life. In the home, focused training and godliness is essential for the development of spiritually healthy relationships and biblical worldviews, but instant distraction is only a text message away. Again, we've lived this. That's why we're here. That's why we're in the room. Consider this scenario. Man comes home. Honey, I'm home. Wife shouts out from the other room, I'm on the computer. Uh, Husband (laughs) grabs his iPad, which is really why he came home anyway. Uh, What's for dinner? Uh, As he's Googling the sports, uh, she says, heat up the pizza. And she's scrolling down Facebook. And he goes, want some? She says, I'm good. And then she finds some political blog or he starts to just devour the dominoes and sits on the other side of the house. And then the, the journey to nowhereville begins. And you don't see them again until you say goodnight. They are alone together. And more and more people are feeling isolated by the same tool that purports to bring them closer. You got friends. You got friends on Facebook. We don't talk about us. We don't plan about us. We don't really acknowledge us anymore. 
Because quite frankly, we're not the biggest thing in the room. Us, we're not the biggest thing. The biggest thing in the room is the entire world. The entire world is at the table. The entire world is sitting with us for dinner, and we feel obligated to entertain our worldwide guest. There's another false sense of reality that the media has brought to us, if you're still taking notes, another Trojan horse that comes into our lives through social media, not only a false sense of intimacy and a false sense of isolation, but third, a false sense of intelligence. This is huge. A false sense of intelligence. You can see where I'm going with this one. Social media affects our families and marriages in that it actually makes us believe that we're using our God-given time, which is fading, to gain important information that might benefit us, grow us, and expand us as a people when really, deep down inside, all it's doing is slowing down our ability to learn. In other words, we're reading the Bible together as an activity that we do together that helps us to grow and to think and to ponder um, at the dinner table, even speaking about spiritual things and waiting and listening and, and going through wrestling with truth. It, it is the same activity of Googling and texting and Facebooking isn't creating more of an ability to connect to one another at all. Instead, it's a facade of the original. It's a counterfeit. It's an illusion. And it gives you a false sense of intelligence. Let me show you. We're all merely allowing the coolness of media and the instant gratification of being able to leave the room in a cyber way without leaving the room in a literal way to convince us to waste our lives away in an activity that stunts our growth. One author writes, this is, I think, the real danger of social media. It changes the way I process information. Or to be more precise, I no longer process information. I merely consume it. I Speed read hundreds of bits of articles a day, absorbing lots of information, but rarely actually thinking about it. It, Difficult thoughts, ambivalent thoughts, the repulsive thoughts, the thoughts too complicated to be reduced to a tweet, they are now labeled low priority and sent back to the office of my mind. We are being seduced. And you're letting it happen. I'm letting it happen. Every time we refuse to acknowledge the danger, we're being seduced by a media that presents itself as Neil Postman says, uh, for our entertainment, but it actually is, in, is amusing ourselves to death. We've stopped learning. We've stopped growing. And this even affects how we study the Bible. And it affects how we understand each other. Oh, my goodness. I'm, it's not even a part of my notes, and I've got so much more to go. But, um, you know, probably the thing I do the most as a pastor, I mean, I preach, I teach, I counsel, I, you know, I, I spend time in hospitals. I do all kinds of things. But when it gets right down to it, a lot of what I do is listen to people. I listen to a lot of people all the time, and it's a joy, and I'm, I'm a trained listener. I know how to listen to people, but I got to tell you something. Social media starts to erode your ability to listen, and I see this in people when I'm talking to them. You know, I, I'll, I'll have just even a, a brief conversation with them, and if it's not in a nine-second kind of bite, sound bite, they're distracted. And, and, and they don't know how to listen. In fact, a lot of this, it's, I can't even get into it so much, but a lot of this is why they, they say, you know, we're having communication problems in our marriage. And I'm saying, yeah, because you don't communicate. And they're going, what did you say? Well, you don't listen. <laughs> so I, I bring this category to you because I think that we must be aware of what we're doing or otherwise we're misusing our time. And, and if you're like me, Uh, which you probably are, uh, every time you have a birthday, you start to think of how little time you have left. If we're going to do this thing, we need to do this thing. 
because time is running out and the mission has not changed. And so it's really not for me to an issue of dumbing down my marriage, though it would be hard-pressed to believe it wasn't dumbing down my marriage. The real issue is that we are relearning what is important away from each other and away from talking to each other in separate rooms, and each of us is under the illusion that in some way we're being benefited or satisfied by this wonderful new thing when, truthfully, we are wasting the most precious commodity that we have is time. We're running out of time. And we do that under the premise that we're doing is, is benefiting us, but it's not. Ephesians 5.16, you know it well, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So I want you to challenge yourselves. And you've been doing this all week long, and I know that, and I'm encouraged by that. But I challenge yourself, ask yourself the next time you and your wife are both on Facebook together or, and, and the clock is running around the dial over and over again, ask yourself, am I avoiding that one that I promised to love? Am I, is it easier for me to be sitting over here allowing her to be over there because I feel like the big thaw has set in and there's nothing I can really do about it and I don't know what to do about it, so we'll just be comfortably numb. My suggestion when it comes to marriage, pull yourself off of Facebook and download, download yourself onto your spouse's face. That's more fun. It's more educational and definitely more marriage, pro-marriage. There's a fourth enemy inside this Trojan horse, a fourth false sense of reality that media has brought to us. Not only does media, social media foster a false sense of intimacy, a false sense of isolation, a false sense of intelligence, but also a false sense of image. Image. Oh, this is huge. This is huge. There is something about Facebook, YouTube, all the rest that, that creates an image, an imaginary image of ourselves. First, just briefly, and none of this can you guys relate to, I know. Uh, let me address this to how social media really distorts our sense of ourselves, specifically through our pride. Uh, Dr. Lauren Laporta, chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at St. Joseph's, believes that the popularity of social networking sites is a direct result of the growing narcissism in American culture uh, due largely to the self-esteem movement in the 1990s. Writing for Psychiatric Times, she observes, it is my contention that these sites would not have risen to such prominence but for the fact that a generation of narcissists need an outlet. The millennial generation needed a way to assert their uniqueness, their specialness, and garner attention and praise of the masses. So Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok all fit the bill. We're delusional. This is a delusional society. Uh, so pride has now found its playground, and pride's playground is social media. I mean... He's not a believer. This is a friend of mine's a Mormon, and um, he pursues acting. And it's, it's just so hard for me because I, I, I do go on Facebook to see what my um, congregants are doing or not doing. And uh, he, he, he's on there, and he's a bodybuilder. And he was a bodybuilder. And he got down to, I think, like 2.5% body fat, which I, I thought you would die from that. But he, he looked great. It was probably Photoshop. But anyway... <laughs> I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm just better. Anyway, so, uh, so looking at this, and I happen to know because I saw him like two months ago, and he's now kind of gloating about the fact now he's pursuing parts with his dad bod, which means he's not in shape anymore. But what I've noticed is that online he still shows these pictures of himself every week, if not every day, 
with his ripozoid physique. And I'm just thinking to myself, why? It's like, dude, you're not that anymore at all. You, I mean, you, you know, I thought most people knew this, but he can't stop. He's living through the, vicariously through pixels of his past. And so pride has found like this new playground, this social media playground, and it has dangerously affected the way people look at themselves. Case in point, study done by German researchers of Humboldt University in Berlin. They took a sample of 357 German students, of which one in three users cited jealousy as the leading cause of Facebook-induced bad feelings. Some people call it Facebook envy. Um, the viewing of someone else's life. Now, I'm saying Facebook. You guys don't even probably know what that is. I remember being on a plane one time and watching someone scrolling through this thing. I'm going, what are they doing? I could see it from my seat. I'm going, what is that? And a friend's telling me it's, it's Facebook. And I'm going, that is so weird. And so every morning now that I scroll, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I just weird. How weird is this that I actually gained this same uh, through osmosis? But all I'm saying is, when you see someone else's vacation, I don't go anywhere. When you see someone else's beauty, and, 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 and people can fall into depression. And it's just, and I, who cares? We're not supposed to be comparing ourselves anyway. But it's just the fact that we have such access to pictures and, and details of other people's lives. We start to think poorly about the rich life God has given us. And man, when it comes to women... Uh, they see and envy beauty of other women, and they have more, I think, than men, sinful comparisons and unhealthy routines. I know this because I knew of an actress that was a student of mine years ago who was, by all accounts, a very attractive woman, but she would constantly want elective surgery, a constantly, that she would be out of class for elective surgery. And one time she came to class, and she looked like a raccoon. Like someone had like beat her up, you know what I'm saying, in her face. And I thought she had been mugged. And I said, like, what, what happened? And she said, well, I'm just getting this part, you know, worked on over here. And I just realized for the first time in my life that sometimes pretty girl couldn't be pretty enough. She just couldn't be. And actually, as you know, if you've seen people, uh, they end up becoming a hideous form of what they used to be. It doesn't even look real anymore. And so, and that's not just an issue for women, but it just reminds me, I don't see a lot of guys doing that. Men see beauty that belongs to a woman that's not their wife, and they become lustful. And so and that's put on display 24 hours, seven days a week. And guys, this is what I was going to say. There's never been a time in history before where so many images from so many people have been so wildly available to view and distract you and cause a cause for sin as we have now in modern media. And you know this. More and more access to pictures and details of other people's lives, we begin to covet what other people have. We start to want what somebody else has, and we demean what God has given. And look, sin is sin. You're accountable. I'm accountable for what you look at, without a doubt. But you need to be aware that you and I live in a time, it's unlike anything else in human history. You can push a button... And you can see what no one else has ever seen in the history of mankind in numbers that exceed it so much, it exceeds even your natural ability to comprehend it. My son and I were just talking about the other day. He was telling to me, he goes, you know, Dad, Solomon you know, had 400 wives and, or 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it took, you know, and he goes, I always thought that was massive. He goes, but you could watch that much pornography if you wanted to in an hour. You know, I mean, just trying to deal with the reality of this, it's, it's disturbing. So brace yourself. Largest consumers of pornography are boys, 
12 to 17 years old. 90% of children ages 9 to 16 have viewed pornography at some time. 38% of adults say pornography is morally acceptable. 50% of those who call themselves pastors say they have viewed pornography sometime this year. Keith Lambert, in a book that I would commend called Finally Free, maybe you've read it before, he says, men look at pornography out of an arrogant desire to see women in a way that God does not allow. They show arrogant defiance to God's commands, rejecting the delight of sexual intimacy in marriage and deciding for themselves what they believe is better. They show arrogant disregard for God's call to selfless marital love. They show arrogant disdain for their own children by hiding their sin and inviting the enemy into their home and their marriage. They show arrogant disrespect toward all those who would be scandalized if their sin were known. The root problem with men who look at porn is not neediness, it is arrogance, end quote. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. I think it's a very helpful way to think of it. Remember, sin lies at the door waiting to, to spring upon you. And you, you can walk through that door and pretend that that creature is not there waiting, that sin, you may want to believe that you're strong enough to walk through that door without looking around and, and being okay with your surroundings, but it is crouching at the door, very low, out of sight, it's spring-loaded, and it wants to trip you up. More than that, it wants to destroy you. And God has told you in advance that that is true. So be very careful about how you proceed. Fifth false sense of reality. The false sense of reality brought to us, the last Trojan horse, if you will. False sense of intimacy, false sense of isolation, false sense of intelligence, false sense of image, and now a false sense of importance. Social media infuses a false sense of importance. Now, you might think that I'm saying false sense of your own personal importance, which actually is also true. That is true. But what I'm trying to say here is social media's ability to make you believe that media is important, that it is important to your life, that media wants to make you believe that the entire world of social influence is important and your world is not important. Now, I want you to listen because this is a particular slant that I don't think people think about a lot. It gives you a false sense of its own importance. The access that social media gives to you, the entire world, gives you a sense that you're missing out if you're not plugged in. You're missing out on what's going on, and and it's really relevant. Everything but your life is relevant. When the truth is, our exposure to these thousands upon thousands of many epic stories is ultimately inconsequential to anything that has substance in your life. Media has become our culture's substitute for meaning. Media has become our culture's substitute for meaning. We believe that unless we are connected to the hustle and bustle of life, that we're afraid we're disconnected from what's really important in life. Unless we feel that we're in the center of the news, we feel like we don't have a life. We must connect to the universe or else we die of underexposure. No longer is communication information the goal. Media now has taken on its own life. The device of media is now as important as the information from media. And so we begin to consume it more than the product. But the Bible says we need to stand clear of these temptations and and deal with the things that really matter. Now, I want you to go with me in a very unlikely place. Go to 1 Timothy, and we're going to kind of wrap it up with this. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and For those of you that 
know your Bibles, you might go in like, he's going to talk about widows? Why, why, why is he going to widows? That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But I'm going to show you. I'm going to back up into this. I want you to see that the shepherding of your flock through cyber sin can actually be seen, and a helpful angle is here. In the early church, as you know, there was a list to the local body of believers that would be developed of elderly women whose husbands had died, and this was a list of widows. And, and Paul describes who these women should be in verses 9 and 10. He talks about these widows who are widows indeed. And there are some widows, as he's describing these widows, who are true widows, he says, that should not be put on the list. Are you following? So here's a list of widows. These gals are above reproach. They should be put on the list. They don't have any husbands. The church can help them. But then he says, but wait a second, there are some others. And so at first, you might sit there and think, wait a second, that's tough. You're telling me that some gal's husband died, and you're saying that Paul said, don't put them on the list? Why? Why would he do that? Well, look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5. But refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Now, technically speaking, just follow this. These young widows really didn't have a thorough understanding of their own hearts. And that's part of what pastoring is, to help people. They think that they're ready to commit themselves to the work of the Lord. And so they believe they should deny themselves of marriage. I won't get married. I'll just be a widow indeed. I want to help others out. But what they don't understand is themselves. They don't understand the power of temptation in their own lives to still want to be married. And so if they're still at the age of life where they have feelings for marriage, More often than not, those feelings are going to tempt them to break their pledge not to marry again and to be a widow indeed. So he says, don't put them on the list, Timothy. Don't do that and allow them to be tempted beyond what they can bear so they will break their word. Because young women who have lost their husbands because of youth don't understand the issues of their own heart. There will be restlessness in them. Okay, now follow. There's going to be a desire that's running around inside of them that can't be directed because now their husband is gone. All of their energies, which were once directed toward responsibilities, needing to care for their husband, uh, cooking, taking care of home, etc., now are uncaged and they need direction because they don't have to do that anymore. But they don't realize this is going to happen. And Paul says to Timothy, who is younger and who's inexperienced, watch out for this. Watch out for this. Now, note with me that the part of the pastor's responsibility involves you helping the sheep of God understand their own hearts and helping them understand how susceptible they are, which is part of what I'm doing even now, to wander away from his right at certain times and conditions. And this relates to much more than just understanding their heart towards marriage. That's the immediate context. This concerns the whole life of the person. Now, in ancient times, as you know, the Romans' responsibilities were very heavy. Once the man died... Uh, idolist sets in. Once the man dies and there's no children, idolist sets in. There's much more or too much time to be tempted. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Look at verse 13. At the same time, they learn to be idle. They go around from house to house and not merely idle, but gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So instead of learning to love, they learn to be idle. You see that, right? This is super clear. Now, 
What's a busybody? Because they're going to try to fill the vacuum of not having a husband or not having a life that was created by their husband's death by being a busybody. Well, this is the one definition I got, which I like. A busybody is the kind of person you just want to punch in the mouth for being so annoying. (laughs) It was probably Oxford English Dictionary that had that one. Uh, They frequently use their excessive amount of time to annoy and monitor others, tattletale for small meeting issues, butt into everybody's business except their own, and spy on people as if they think they are a cop or important person or something. End quote. So what's a busybody? A body that's busy. That's literally what it means. Someone who is from the Greek verb to walk around, who's all over the place all the time. So let me put it another way. We've got five minutes. A busybody is someone who involves themselves in the business and speculations of others' lives because their own life is so uninteresting to them and so unfulfilled and unattractive. As one commentator said, quote, since she had nothing of her own to take up her attention, she would be very apt to be overly interested and overly interesting in the affairs of others, end quote. So just listen to me here, and I think this is, this is powerful. If your life isn't full with the right things, you're going to fill it with the wrong things. If your life isn't full, you're going to try to fill it with the lives of other people that you don't even know. If your life isn't full with either work or in ministry or more importantly with meaning, meaning, why are you here? Then you're going to try to fill it with any kind of meaning you possibly can. And placing your attention on the details of the interests of other people, the latest news, trends, I'm not talking about empathy for real empathy's sake, but just distractions, allows you to be placing your attention on what, needs you are avoiding in your own life. To put it simply, we live our lives like young widows who have nothing better to do than to stick their noses into the affairs of other people. And we have chosen somewhere along the line to live vicariously through the adventures of others rather than focusing on the attention of our own homes. That's the bottom line. It's so clear. Learning to love takes work. It takes struggle. It takes effort, and sometimes it's just easier to turn on the television or the computer and gaze without responsibility to the circumstances or the stories of other people. It's wasting your life away one click at a time, and it's harmful, and it's slothful, and it's dangerous to your faith and to your life and to your spouse. So underlining this issue in 1 Timothy 5 is this. Be careful how you spend your time. Be careful to fill your life with precious things like the church and the Lord and marriage and children. Otherwise, you will fall prey to filling your life with the secret successes and failures of other people. A long time ago, someone said it to me this way. If you're not playing a big enough game, you'll mess up the one you're playing just to give yourself something to do. If you're not playing a big enough game, if you're if your attention on your own life is so small, so narrow, if if you're just focusing on the next meal and you're not focusing on the glories of Christ, the mission of the gospel, the greatest commission in the world, uh, the evangelization of the lost, the building up of the church, if you're not focused on those things, you're going to do the smaller things in such a way you're going to mess them up just because you're bored. And messing it up has a great platform in social media. In other words, if you're not treating your life in Christ and your involvement in the church and your intimacy in marriage to be a big enough extravaganza 
to hold your attention, then you will involve yourself in the minutia to escape that gnawing responsibility that you're wasting your life and your, your drug of choice will be social media. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, if you do what you ought to do, then you won't have time to do the things you ought not to do. Simple, profound. If you do the things you ought to do, you won't have time to do the things you ought not to do. So this is a simple principle, okay? We have to just all operate under this premise. The great temptation underlying social media is that you're not making, listen, a big enough deal about your life. For some reason, your life is not a big enough deal to you. For some reason, you're living small-mindedness. And sometimes your marriage isn't as important as it ought to be. Sometimes instead of turning off the device and engaging the person, we need to say to ourselves, I can't allow what I'm watching to be more interesting to me than what's right here before me. And though you might not literally be saying any of these things, in essence, you are communicating that your spouse, your children, your church is not as interesting to you as what's right before you. First Thessalonians, if you want to just turn there, this is my last thought. First Thessalonians 4. 9 through 12, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. He says, Now, concerning love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more and to make it, watch this, your ambition, what? to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Make it your ambition. Verse 10 is connected to verse 11. It could be said, and excel still more by doing that. And the Major effort to relax and remain silent. Keep your mouth closed. Don't say anything. Quiet down. Be peace at peace in your heart. So to end, Christians are to live a quiet, relaxed, restful, peaceful life in, the pers- in persecution in face of anticipation of the Lord's return. And the reason maybe that they needed to quiet down the most is because they need just to attend to their own business, to attend, to concentrate on your own life. Does that ring true for you? Just to concentrate on your own life. A few years ago, we were at Christmas, and I'll just end with this thought. And it was Christmas morning, and it's a glorious time. And the kids are over there on some brand-new device I foolishly bought them. <laughs> and, and my wife is on her computer, and I, I have my, my iPad. And I thought to myself, we're really not together anymore. I want my life back. I want my life back. I want my children back. I want my, my wife back. I want board games. I want charades and storytelling. And and I want to protect my family. And I want you to protect your family. It was Augustine who gives us the most practical conclusion. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose and now was glad to reject. You, speaking of God, drove me from, you drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor 
though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation, be ever present my joy. I pray that helps. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more to say, and these men are here because you have drawn them to the subject because we all sense in one way or in the other through whatever means, whichever social media tool, that in some ways we are wasting the life you gave us. And we want it back, Lord, and we want to fill it up with beauty and truth and love and intimacy that comes from you and from the good gifts that you give. Father, give us all the courage to look into our hearts, to do surgery in whatever way is necessary, and to come out with hearts that are alive and ready to serve you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.